Well, hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of the Red Couch Theology Podcast. Hey, if you happen to be a listener and you've been a listener for a while and you've considered this uh, to be something of value, uh, would you give us a like or a subscribe on YouTube or um, maybe on your favorite podcast service? Give us a review. It really helps us get the word out. There's this uh, algorithm and it works and it gets the word out and all that stuff. Yeah, I'm supposed to say this as a podcaster, so thanks. Uh, This week on the episode... I'm both excited and a little bit nervous, if I'm honest, because we tackle some really hairy, scary subjects when it comes to prophecy and maybe even what's going on. Is there a prophetic voice that needs to happen in America today? Are we going off the rails? And we're going to deal with a lot of those questions. We're in this book of Jeremiah in the season of Lent, and it's a little bit heavy and there's some tricky subjects to navigate, but we're going to try our best. So tune in and find out about how do we wrestle with some of these issues that we've just talked about? So without any further ado, let's jump right in to this week's episode. Five, four, three, three, one, go. Alex, I have a complaint. <laughs> How's that? Just Is about the countdown. <laughs> no, no, no. My complaint, I'm testing audio Is here. I should... Well, first, I'm going to test. I'm producing this show as well at the same time. So I'm just going to test a couple things, make sure we're good to go, and, and, then, and then I'll complain. Okay. So here's my complaint. Uh-huh. So uh, we invited people to ask questions, <laughs> and now they've started to do that. Yeah. And this week, well, I wanted are. to be selfish. <laughs> I had so much, so many things I wanted to talk about with you. And I was so excited. And then I looked at all our questions. I was like, like, wow, we got a question, question, question. But I want to talk to Alex all by myself. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wouldn't that be fun? If If, only we worked in the same office and could talk together all the time. (laughs) If only. Oh, man. I'm just joking. It's Uh, awesome. We're actually getting some questions rolling in, which is kind of fun. Yeah. Uh, Who would have thought it? Should we acknowledge that they're listening to us now? Yes. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Red Couch Theology Podcast. Welcome to the podcast of the uncomfortable Red Couch. Oh, yes. Um, and we are, uh, yeah, we are jumping into a new series uh, at South. And we so are. In this podcast, too. And it, evidently, it's, uh, it's exciting to some folks. Yeah, There's which a lot is of baffling to me, because I wasn't excited <laughs> when I was. I, I, so I, I uh, like, little behind the scenes. I'd kind of said to staff maybe, what was it, three months ago or so. It was just, I think it was before Christmas. I said, I think I'm thinking about Lamentations or Jeremiah for Lent. Yeah. Um, and if you're unfamiliar with Lent or, or actually maybe even um, have come to think Lent is a bad thing. And that might be like because you exited Catholicism or because you grew up in a Protestant world that was anti-Catholicism. Like that was what I got. I got, well, we don't fast for Lent. I remember trying to give up chocolate biscuits one year and my mom was like, no, I don't even think I ate that many chocolate biscuits to be honest, but it just felt like, you know, yeah. wanted, to do, wanted to do my part, get involved. Um, and so if you've come with that mindset, I can understand that I've been there. And yet it's this practice that's way older than a Catholic, it's, it's older than an East and West church split, which if you're familiar with church history, the schism. It's sort of like 1092-ish. Um, the, the, there's a split between East and West. I just churches. want to know how you, like, I'm in church history. I learned, I like, the, well, I've been in multiple church history classes. Yeah. And last week we covered the Great Schism. Uh-huh. I couldn't pull the date. I knew it was in the 10 hundred tens. And I could be wrong, who knows. Uh, say anything uh. confidently and people will believe you. Uh, um, Welcome to the Red Couch Daily Podcast, <laughs> where we make stuff up and say it with confidence. Confidence statements. <laughs> oh, um, but regard, let's, yeah, the 11th century split, just in case I'm wrong. Um, that, so it's, it's earlier than any of that. The earliest Lenten practices seem to come from even the 4th century, perhaps. Yeah. Um, and they were focused on a couple of things. They were focused on preparing for Easter and pulling some of the elements of Jesus' 40-day fast in the wilderness into everyday life. Yeah. Um, you said it in a, in a way that I just loved on Sunday. It was something along the lines of what you, you get from Easter, what you put into Lent. Yeah. Is that how you said yeah. it? That exact way? I, so mm. I think I said I. 
But you, you might you could say we. We, yes. as a, we as a church, we as individual followers of Jesus, we get out of Easter what we put into Lent. Now, of course, on a macro level, I'm massively overstating it. The, the, the atonement work of Easter will continue whether we do Lent or not. The big story of Easter. You only remains. get saved if you do Lent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's get joking. back to some of that works theology. I like it. <laughs> Um, but, but your understanding of it, my understanding of it, it seems every year that I do Lent as a serious practice. By the yeah. time I get to Easter, Resurrection Sunday, I'm like, I am ready for resurrection and to let it imbibe me in a new way. Yeah. And if I'm honest, there's other years, even when I'm preaching Easter, that it can kind of skip me by as just another season to get through. Yeah. Um, and, and I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm kind of happy, go lucky guy. So. On Easter Sunday, I'll still have a big smile on my face and be giddy as a school kid because I, I just love singing the Easter Sunday songs, the resurrection songs on Resurrection Sunday. Yeah. Um, but but I think the 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 life change seems tied into the practices. Well, and uh, you know, this is some illustration maybe we even used on this podcast for some other issues, but it's kind of like. Uh, I was in this uh, studio art class in high school. And early on in that class, it was like a college level drawing mm -hmm. illustration class. And early on, I kept getting docked on my work, on my art pieces, because I didn't incorporate enough contrast. Mm. And yeah. so the, the teacher kept saying, Aaron, you, you're, like, you're good at this. You're doing some great pieces. It's a great representation of what you're trying to draw, but it's not visually as appealing because you don't have dark enough darks yeah. and light enough lights. Yeah. And that's part of what's going on with Lent yes. is you have this deep darkness in the in the Lent season which then accentuates and highlights the hot, bright bright of Which Easter. I will say in your defense and to knock a question off the list already someone asked where was our artwork yeah. taken for from our for our series in the in the style of uh, Trump Loy, I think Yes, maybe, maybe I don't, I don't know, but but it was we took um, Rembrandt van Rijn's uh, Jeremiah lamenting over Jerusalem painting, mm -hmm. which I feel has no contrast, and I feel like like that about a lot of Rembrandt. I feel like yeah, he, so maybe it's not Trumploy, but I, I feel like he doesn't do a lot of contrast, just regardless. And I'm yeah. like, everyone loves Rembrandt. He's like a legend, and yes. and yeah, so. I feel like you should have got, been able to get away with it. Well, sometimes, yeah, sometimes those paintings, they require a ton of, like, spotlighting yes. to fully appreciate okay, yeah, because yeah, yeah. They, they are so dark and dingy, uh -huh. um, and it's hard to translate into, uh, you know, yeah. screen or something. But if you were wondering where our, our, our artwork came from... That was one of our questions. It was one of our questions. Rembrandt. And, and Rembrandt is, is the guy that we chose for this one. I, I said, Teresa, our... Communications director does all uh, most of our art design, graphic design. Said, "I said I, I should tell everyone that you painted it for the <laughs> series." <laughs> She's like, "No, you better not tell people that because I definitely did not." Um, and then we should have them paint it live on yeah. stage as we're doing. Um, and and it, the beautiful thing about using Rembrandt, of course, is that it's so old you don't have to pay royalties or anything like that to use. Brilliant. It's like free to use. Um, yeah. Uh, so that you, but you are right. Generally, contrast, contrast, on a TV show, on a uh, in a movie, in, in, in a piece picture, of music, art, yeah, piece of music. It, it makes it's loud, what makes yeah. things stand out. Um, in a worship set, yep. You move. There's a flow. There's a, if everything's just at the same, uh, same level, it just doesn't. Yeah, doesn't we work do. In the same way. We do old and new songs. We do quiet and loud songs. Yeah. We do up-tempo and down-tempo songs, and that's all strategic to sort of create this journey. So, so Lent provides the contrast to Easter. Um, and then the, the, the challenging question is, if we don't do stuff like Lent in the Western church, where's the space to tap into some of the, the elements, the places we don't, where's the, where's the space to go to places we don't want to go? Uh -huh. Um, you know, that, that like, we don't do that. And every time I, I think about like that, that idea of spaces we don't want to go, I always think of Jack Nicholson in A Few Good Men. 
where he's huh. like he's he's kind of yelling at Tom Cruise, the like the the young optimistic lawyer, and he's like, deep down in places you don't talk about at parties or something like that. That's my best Jack Nicholson. Um, wow! All right. He, all right. He, uh, he like we all have those places we don't talk about at parties, uh, and the the Western Church can at times just be a constant party. Um, and the only time we do death and sadness is a funeral or memorial service. And the next Sunday, we're right back to, to everything's awesome. Mm -hmm. um, so in addition, so we kicked off the series for Lent. But specifically, the other thing that's a little bit interesting about people's intrigue related to the series is you chose the book of Jeremiah. Yeah, and I've regretted it ever since. No. <laughs> <laughs> to go through Lent, and I, we've already heard several people out there say, I'm really excited for the book of Jeremiah, which you're weird. Um, yeah. No, I'm just joking. Uh, I'm just joking. We're, we I'm actually really excited. After, after you preach the message, by the way, if you didn't hear the message, I'm going to give a shout out extra this week because I loved the, the you. way you wove this message together, the way you talked about Lent, the way you, um, you made me excited for Jeremiah? What? Yeah. I, I feel like it's some of the, the Southiness of South. We are a strange community of faith, <laughs> a brave community of faith that is willing in Lent to, go through, that. to go through Jeremiah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and it was that or Lamentations, which is equally as um, problematic. So, so the, there is... And I wonder whether some of the excitement about Jeremiah is that one, it's, it's rarely a series book. Like, like when you say yeah. to people, how often have you been in a series on Jeremiah? Most times go down. Even like how many of you write, read Jeremiah for your daily devotional reading? Like it, it, it's not super common. And some of that is simply, it's a get through book. It's like the back end of Exodus. It's like uh, parts of Leviticus. It's like the book that you just, you do because you feel like you should. At times, yeah, um, and it's super. Out of all the books I've read in the the Bible, which is all of them, um, uh, it, <laughs> good. I'm, I'm really it's, glad it's super complex. Yeah, like, like it's so complex because. So, so if you're into, if you're someone who's into what people would call source criticism, you you might have a view that Jeremiah was just penned start to finish by the same person. That's fine. Could be accurate. It doesn't feel that way when you read it. It feels... Define source criticism for people a little, so, just briefly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so the, <laughs> it's a whole world. The, so. the, the idea that a, that a book could be made up of multiple different sources. Authors. So yeah. authors. So, so, and maybe the same author, but written at different times. So Jeremiah has narrative sections that don't always feel like they fit in some of the poetic sections. Um, so when you read, if you were to read it without having a name on it, without yeah. having any information your feel would be, this isn't the same person speaking. Uh, this is a mixture of different people. Now, it could be that it is the same person. Uh, what, what I would encourage you to just ask, though, is, is my faith in the book and God speaking through it dependent on it being the same person? Because I don't think there should be anything about whether it's written by the same person that makes you dependent on it. Like, that, yeah, and, that's an assumption. Yeah, and source criticism is like this whole world in and of itself. Uh, if you want to look that up and research it, if you want to nerd out on the documentary theory and stuff like that, you can go look those terms up for yourself. But it also kind of comes in vogue and out of vogue in different seasons, depending yeah. on scholarship and manuscript discovery. And then Jeremiah's just written over a long period of time. Yeah. So you've got maybe 30 years, three different kings. It's like you trying to write. Now, now we feel Jeremiah's a long book. It's the longest book in the in the Bible by word, which is the only way you can really measure a book. Um, and so we like try and imagine writing a book that covers the lives of George H.W. Bush, um, Bill Clinton, George Bush Jr., and Barack Obama, like, and, and keeping it to the length that it is in Jeremiah, the length of Jeremiah. That's a lot of history to cover, a lot of change yeah. to cover, a lot of different seasons. Yeah, and if there was no wars or no tumultuous situations, then you'd, you'd maybe be able to, like, try and summarize pretty heavily. But, no, this... There's like exile happening. Yeah. There's there's you thriving in exile and return. And it's just there's like 
you can't gloss over some of these historical events. So the reason I picked those presidents, not some older presidents, is because I think there's this event that you just mentioned. There's this moment of, of the conquering destruction of Jerusalem, um, followed by the... So, so Jerusalem is, is conquered in 597 BC. The temple is destroyed in 587 BC. So there's like 10 years of war, 10 years of defeat with some kind of like existence of some vassal state, some state dependent on another state, uh, paying tribute, all the best people have gone. And then finally, a group still there rebel. Um, so Jeremiah covers that period. So there's, there's good, everything seems great, which is kind of what we covered on, on Sunday. There's worse, there's worst, and then there's hope. Um, yeah. And so interestingly, as we get to some of the questions, maybe we'll unpack this more. The, the period of American presidents I picked is, is, is fascinating because Bill Clinton, some people look back now and say like the 90s was the most peaceful decade that the, the world has known yeah. in the last, in, in maybe thousand years. Yeah. Like, like there's actually relative peace in most places. There'd been the first Iraq war, but everything seems to have settled down. Um, and in actual fact, globally, like the, the communist um, rule in Russia falls, the Berlin War comes down in 89. There's like some level of like world peace, just like Josiah. And, and as we talked about with Josiah, this first King Jeremiah is around like... Are you, are you calling Bill Clinton Josiah? I'm saying that there was a level of everything is great. And there were yeah. people at the same time that were like, no, it's not great. Yes. For dot, 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 for this reason, for that reason. Now we could go into all the political things yeah. that you might think. <laughs> I mean, that, that's just like a minefield. But but, but the, the economy was great under yes. Clinton. Like the, the late 90s economy, everything's booming, everything's up. Um, the, the sense of American dominance, the, the Cold War ends. There is no competitor anymore. Like the biggest competitor is Japan. Uh, and that's just on a, on a like a, an economic technological level. But in reality, like American worldwide supremacy is unmatched. Yep. And then there's 9-11. Like then there's this moment where suddenly there's an, 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 an unimaginable event that takes place. At least on our shores. Yeah. Yeah. So, so do you think about like two huge towers in the middle of New York that, that symbolize what? Greatest nation in the world. Yeah. Richest nation in the world. Um, and then suddenly there's this moment of tragedy uh, and, and everything changes. Like in 2000, you are going to meet people at the gates at an airport. You're wandering through like this half-hearted security or like everything's chilled. And then suddenly you're going through long lines with metal detectors and all these other elements and stuff like that. Suddenly you, the, the, the place people fly from is a closed off um, entity. It's separate from everything else. Yeah. Uh, all based on that one thing. And suddenly there's wars now everywhere. There's Afghanistan, there's Iraq, there's all of these things going huh. on. Um, and the threat in return. As an American, are you safe in other countries anymore? Like what's, yeah. how are you perceived? How is the nation perceived? So you see that switch and, and you think about, for those of you that are old enough, which is, is a chunk of us, think about how different now the 90s felt compared to suddenly 2002, 2003, 2004. Yeah. Um, and we're still in this tumultuous uh -huh. situation all yeah. the time. So, Ukraine so, war and Russia and is yeah. China getting involved and on and on and on and on. And there's a little bit of undercurrent of intensity yeah. Now, where, so where Jeremiah will get fascinating for us, as Jeremiah predicts things are going to get worse, and they do, the question becomes like, why do they get worse? Um, and, and this is where it gets like deeply, deeply problematic for us as Westerners. Y yes. All right. Well, before we go there, do okay. you mind if I pause for yeah, a second? Because yeah, we're going to get some questions uh -huh. related to that. So I think we'll be able to get back to that because... I'm excited to hear what you're about to say. <laughs> don't let me forget. Okay. Um, I, don't, I don't think our listeners will let us forget. We'll no, have to no. go back to this next week if we yeah, forget. Yeah. Um, but before that, could we just set up a basic structure of what 
what's the role of prophecy? Because Jeremiah is a prophetic book. Mm-hmm. It's in the prophetic section mm-hmm. of the Old Testament. And so um, maybe just get us a little bit of a framework for yeah. what is prophecy uh, scripturally, and then let's go into some okay, of those tricky agree. questions. So that's cool? fun, because I think there's two words that are really helpful with that, because prophecy, so prophecy is a tough one for us 21st century Westerners, because we tend to think um, tarot cards, fortune telling, like kind of, you know, person with some kind of head scarf thing with a ball and a, like a mystical accent. Um, there's two words that I, I think are helpful in understanding Prophecy. Prophecy is a combination of foretelling and forthtelling. Yeah. Um, so there is the predictive aspect, but it's primarily dependent on if you keep doing this, this will happen. So, so it's not so much the day by day, like in 10 years, this will happen on this day and the day after this will happen. And this, there's times it works like that. Daniel chapter... Um, chapters one through eight fascinatingly work very much like that, which has made people question, were they written before the event or after the event? Because generally that's not how biblical prophecy works anywhere else, like the day by day. Mm -hmm. Um, So, so that, that's a whole other dating debate. That's, that's fascinating. (laughs) Um, So, but generally it's a lot of, it's, it's, there's a lot of societal, um, questioning and challenges. Like, this isn't how you're supposed to live. This isn't God's way for us to be. So there's this wonderful professor at, the, at Denver Seminary um, and uh, in the Old Testament department. Oh, man, I'm going to draw a blank on his name. That's so horrible. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Um, but he's great. He's so great. <laughs> and I'm sure I'll talk about him again sometime <laughs> soon. But he he liked to say it this way. He, uh, he's a German guy, and mm-hmm. he's like, Biblical prophecy is more about telling off the nation. Yeah. It's it's telling on people and saying, you should do it differently. It's not supposed to be like this. Yeah. That's the... And if you actually look through all these prophetic texts, the the lion's share of all of it, which is what you're saying, is that. That's the... And there's a tiny little fraction... There's a, there's a tiny little fraction of it that's the foretelling of the future. And, and, and the writer Walter Brueggemann has this incredible book called The Prophetic Imagination, yeah. where he talks about, you know, the, there's the prophecy aspect, which some churches do really well. This isn't how society should be. And then there's the imagination world, which some churches do well, which is like, this is what it could be. Um, yeah. And there's very few churches that are able to do both at the same time. Huh. Um, and so Jeremiah is that prophetic voice. He is an insider who becomes an outsider in order to tell off the nation. Yeah. Um, and, and that even in the first chapter that we looked at this week, he starts to allude to some of that in actual fact that there seems like an appropriate terror in Jeremiah's voice as he starts to imagine what his life will look like. Yeah. I mean, some of that, like I'm too young is that like element of don't put me through this. Like, why would you do this to a kid? I mean, Jeremiah's probably 18, 19 years old. Um, yeah, totally. And so God says to him, that, well, don't look at them to be afraid of them. Um, yeah. If you choose to be afraid, I'll make you terrified, is almost the language. Yeah, this, do, uh, not, do not say I'm too young. You must go to everyone I send you and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you. And I will rescue, declares the Lord. So, so the, the the undercurrent of it seems to me, no life is going to get bad, Jeremiah. But <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna make sure it's okay in the end. Um, yeah. Someone once told me when I was just first starting Bible college that um, you had that it was wise if you were considering ministry uh, to go th- through the the uh, to count the cost like and to maybe use Jeremiah to do that. Because basically he gets a calling and says, you're going to fail miserably. Mm -hmm. You're supposed to tell them to stop doing Mm -hmm. stuff. I guarantee they won't listen. Uh Yeah. And it's all going to fall apart. It's all going to come undone at the scenes. And so this, this professor was like, you need to go through and say, Hey, if I, do ministry, what if no one ever listens? Totally. And I, and I, Uh, how would you feel? And I, and I have a, um, a, a mentor and friend up in Ohio and he and I have similar personalities. And one of the things he challenged me on uh, like a while back is he said, Alex, like 
at some point you can't be nice. Like, and he said, you're like me, like you like people to like you, you like to be nice. And so I, one of my questions that I asked him was, give me some practical things you did to help overcome that. And he said, like, counting the cost is a big one of those. So you go into a conversation, you know what you need the outcome to be, yep. you know what the easy pathway is, and so you count the cost of the hard pathway before you have the conversation. You're like, this is where it's going to go. This is what could happen, and I'm going to be okay with it. It could blow up in my face. Yeah. And that's kind of the gift that God gives Jeremiah mm -hmm. right off in the beginning. He says, this is going to be a hot mess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Buckle up. Yeah. I still want you to do yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it's actually kind of a kindness because he, he doesn't have to deal with that anymore. Like, mm -hmm. what if I succeed? What if my identity fa falls apart because I'm a bad <laughs> prophet preacher? Yeah. That's Jeremiah doesn't have what to ask the... nobody comes to my church? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he doesn't have to deal with that because God's like, yeah, no one's going to come to church. But, but there, <laughs> there is like, there are parallels to, I mean, Jeremiah tells people things they don't want to hear. And there's a whole other bunch of people that he references that are telling people exactly what they want to hear. So in chapter eight, uh, he says there's a whole bunch of other prophets and priests that are saying, peace, peace. Uh, and yeah. yeah, there is no peace. Um, like, don't worry, don't worry. And so Jeremiah goes into this setting and, and forth tells everything that is wrong with society, even at a time under Josiah where things are pretty good. Um, and yeah, that that's... That leads us to that question around why is all of this happening, I think, if you're yeah. ready for that question. Yes. All right. So we actually got um, quite a few questions. Some of them are actually similar. Um, and so I'm not sure if we're going to be able to check off and just go question by question on all of these, because that might take too long. But um, maybe let's start with this question. Because um, uh, I think it'll... I, partially answer someone else's question as well at the same time. Is it fair to think that all wars that have occurred on earth are God's way of bringing judgment, even perhaps the modern world wars one and two, today's war between Russia and the West, or was God's judgment only exacted on this way prior to Jesus, in this way prior to Jesus? That's such a great Go. question. It's such a great question. So, 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 the, the, the challenge of Jeremiah, of other prophetic texts, of, of uh, aspects like conquest, like the destruction of Israel and Jerusalem, um, is that it's very clear to the biblical writers that this isn't just the result of bad foreign policy. It's not just that the, they elected poor leaders, other than that those leaders didn't lead them well spiritually. Like the only premise for this invasion that is given is you have not lived up to the covenant or lived into the covenant that God made with you. Uh, you've chosen to live the opposite way and judgment comes on the back of that. Like that though, there is no other premise now at the same time. I think when you read the old Testament, you, you, you can say some wars are come under that, but some don't. So in, in the story with David and Bathsheba, the story where David uh, has his big moral failing, yeah. uh, where he takes someone's wife and, and has the husband killed. Um, the phrase is given at the time when kings go out to war. Um, like, like the, it seems like in the culture, there was just a time where everyone was like, you know what, we're feeling a bit rowdy. Um, and, and, and that's hard for us <laughs> never, to understand. I've never heard it described that way, but yeah, that's it's what like, it seems to be, right? It's, it's like, oh, it's springtime. Yeah. Uh, we should go to war. Just feeling some angst. And so there's, you know, there's, th there is that, th there are times where, where battles, wars are just spoken of in those terms. Huh. No, it all got a little angsty. Uh, you got to keep your guys busy. The, there's so, so there are wars that are spoken of as specifically judgment, but it isn't everyone. Yeah. Uh, we tend to hear more about the ones that are spoken of in those terms. Yeah. Um, so, so that, that I think even in the old Testament framework rules out the idea that there's just God is behind every war on some level. Um, now then there comes the challenge of like, well, of how we read scripture. 
which we've talked about multiple times on this podcast. And I hope we continue to talk about it. And I hope we it. continue to talk about it. So, so the challenge is this, like when Jesus appears on the scene, um, and, and Brian Zand, one of a uh, pastor over in, I think he's in Missouri, says this in a brilliantly concise way. Jesus appears on the scene and the message that Jesus brings is this, is God looks like Jesus. He has always looked like Jesus. He has never not looked like Jesus. Yeah. Um, and so then when we read the Old Testament reflective of who Jesus is, that's when we have to ask the really challenging question, is all of the Old Testament God's thoughts about man? Is some of the Old Testament man's thoughts about God? And were they wrong? Were they just seasonal? Were they permanent? All those different elements that come in. So, so if you think about something as central to the Old Testament as um, an eye for an eye, a, a, like a, a bedrock concept of how you judge between people and how you yeah. control retribution that's distinctly presented in the Old Testament as given by God to the people of Israel. And then you have Jesus who comes and says, I tell you not an eye for an eye, but choose to not enact vengeance. You're left with two really difficult choices. One is to say that that was God for a time. And two, that was, or two, they were wrong about it in the first place. And neither of them are actually very comfortable when you think about it. No. Yeah. Um, There's no third option. I don't think there is. Huh. If you can think of one, what's the third option? Or the third option could be that it was uh, the best God had to offer humanity, given where humanity was at the time. So that would, but that would come under the yeah. the, the other option, right? It was it was for a time, but oh, yeah. but your extension yeah, right. is it's not reflective of God's real personality and heartbeat. Yes. Um, so it's it's a so so either way, like. When it comes to something, um, something like war, the challenge is if we take that premise, God looks like Jesus. He's never not looked like Jesus. Um, the, the premise seems to be God has always been anti-war. Yeah, and um, someone I can maybe hear, uh, someone who's sharp out there saying, well, that's a quote from a modern pastor. Like, you first prove that God looks like Jesus. Yeah, because um, that's actually that's actually where this problem become, comes from as a as a follower of Jesus as a as a Christian, because having a religion with a God that punishes people or mm -hmm. creates war that's not a very uncommon kind of deity. In fact, no, the majority that's of all the deities, <laughs> the majority of all historical deities have this sort of um, their best interest in mind. We're just peons like mm -hmm. Babylonian gods and these other like. Uh, Greek mythology, you name it, most that's actually a framework for understanding deities that's more common. Mm -hmm. What the problem that we have with it as followers of Jesus is we have this figure who comes, who who the scriptures say in John 1 and Hebrews 1 is mm -hmm. the exact image of God, and then he dies for his enemies. He doesn't kill his enemies. Yeah. He dies for his enemies. Then you're like, well, shoot. And I think that's like, I, I used the succinctness of, of that Brian Zahn quote. And really, it's just a paraphrase of Colossians. Yes. Like he's the image of the invisible God. Yep. Um, so, so, totally. so. I agree. I just wanted to yeah, make yeah, sure you, know, you anchored that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the, um, and, and it's of course not a physical thing. It's not to say God looks like a Middle Eastern man. Um, it's to say that character wise, Character, personality. Uh, personality yeah. of teaching, uh, that's what God looks like. That's his best for human beings. So so yep. we can look at the Old Testament and say there were aspects to it that weren't his best. I'm quite comfortable with that. Yeah. Uh, and yet there seems to be a new story with Jesus that's un unveiled. Yeah. And, and a new look into God's heartbeat. So, so the question then becomes like, well, what does it mean for God's war? What, what does it mean for wars? in in the modern sense yeah so like for a lot of christians uh, just to preamble what you're saying for a lot of christians they're like that's fine new covenant new rules mm -hmm. and they're real comfortable with that uh yeah that has its challenges as well because there's still yeah. war and, and and we tend to 
like that so so what what the the fascinating thing that that I think Jesus does his presentation of who he is and therefore who God is doesn't allow a worldview that just says God is on the side of this nation or that nation and that's really hard for us to understand um so 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 there's this joke in in a comic show in England about why does the first world war start what 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 started World War One? Uh, and there's all these different chain of events you can follow. But one of the like the the soldiers from a rich family who's like super pro-British says, "Well, the 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 um, the war started because of the empire building of the of the German uh, people or the German Kaiser." Uh, and one of the other soldiers who's a bit more thought thought through says, "George, currently the British Empire spans about a third of the globe." Whereas the German Empire is limited to a small sausage factory in Tanganyika. Like, <laughs> if anyone, we may not be completely exonerated on the empire building front as well. Yeah. Like, there's this awareness of, wait, no, this isn't really one side that's right and one side that's not. Yeah. And even the other prophetic books, in, to some extent, even Jeremiah, um, this also really plays out in the book of Isaiah. Uh -huh. You have, God says, I'm going to raise up another nation to punish you. Oh, and they're evil too. Yeah. So in fact, they'll be they're, punished. They're even worse than you yeah. are. And then I'm going to bring them around too. And so you're like, whoa, well, who's, which nation's in the right, which one's in the yes. wrong. Um, yeah. yeah. He even, he'll even refer to Nebuchadnezzar as my servant. Uh, he refers to Cyrus by the same title. And yet both of them in their turn are punished for what they've done. Yep. Um, so, so there is a, there is a complexity there that, that, theologians have been wrestling with for a few hundred years at least, yep. if not nearly 2,000 years, that we're, that we're certainly not going to solve uh, in a in a 45-minute to an hour podcast. Did we just spend 15 um, minutes to tell them we can't answer the question? I, I don't think we said that, hopefully. Uh, <laughs> but, I, but I think that we did acknowledge the, the complexity of, yes, it seems like God has specifically said this war is happening, for reasons direct, directly related to obedience. Um, and, and so we see that as a premise for some wars, even though it has to be seen through the lens of war is not God's ideal for humanity. God's yep. ideal. So, so where I think that we, I would love to push the question is, what does it mean for us as a nation now? Yes. So, which brings me to another question. So hopefully... Uh, I. We could spend three episodes totally. to unpack that first question, but I think where you're taking it starts to span into, I might have to take a second to find it here, another question we received, um, how does the climate of the age today and the life in America and other Western countries look and parallel the lives that Jeremiah was seeing and taking talking about in Israel? Are we living a life that seems alive? Oh, sorry. I can't even see my own computer. Seems alive, even though it leads to death. Yeah, uh, actually, leading to death that just that you describe in your sermon. So that gets into like basically are the re are the re is the reason you're preaching this series through Jeremiah because you're trying to say America, you're just like that back then, mm -hmm. and uh, God's bringing the judgment. The hammer's mm -hmm. coming down, and there's more questions we can go into about that in a moment. Yeah. And so where, where, where I think that becomes fascinating is, so you see this real switch uh, around the time of Jeremiah. Um, this language of remnant starts to come into the Old Testament a lot. Yeah. There's the, there's the nation that is judged, Israel, Judah. There's people dragged off to exile. Some of them eventually come back, and the word that's used regularly is, no, there's this remnant, there's this people, this small group that is still reflective of the nation that is left. It's almost like this movement that stops necessarily talking about Israel quite the same way as God's chosen people, but talks about a people within that people yes. that are chosen in a distinct way. Um, and then you see that, you know, that... that it seems to me, and, and other people would, would speak more to this period in between, like what's known as the intertestamental period. So you've got the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, written somewhere around 400 um, BC, and then nothing really until 
the New Testament period, and there's different rebellions there. There's, there's the Potomac Empire, the Seleucid Empire, there's the Maccabean Revolt, all of these things that are just historically just no time to cover. Um, th there's like, yeah. there's things happening, even though we don't hear about them in the Christian Bible. Uh, and then you've got the, the Jesus movement out of a, a group of people that are essentially living in their own land, but not their own people. Yeah, uh, Rome, a, Rome is ruling. Yeah, and then yeah, and it's a different kind of model because for centuries everyone practiced the same model. You would go and capture people, you'd move them to a different land. Yeah, um, and it's not till actually this group of people we're reading about in Jeremiah come back seventy years later that suddenly this King Cyrus says, "You know what? People are probably more loyal in their own land. I'm just going to send them all back." It's a bizarre switch in foreign policy. No yeah. one has ever done that. Uh, yeah. And and that's what Rome does too. Like they leave people in the land. They they take soldiers off to, to war, but they say keep keep paying taxes to Caesar. You'll keep living. Yep. Um, and so that that shift there into what Jesus does creates this tension between well, who are God's people now? The church or a nation? Uh, and Paul even wrestles with. All, I mean, Paul wrestles with this for a good chunk of Romans. The book, like Romans 9 through 11, are all like this. Wait, who's the branch now? Who's yeah. grafted in now? Like, what does this mean? What about the people that never... What about Israel? Yeah. And then, and it, it, interestingly, like, the early church was considered the people within the people. Yeah. And so you had this nation that's not a nation, uh -huh. Israel. And then there's this subgroup of people who said, we uphold the kingdom of God. Yes. We're followers of Jesus. But at the time, until around 70 AD... There's like, they're just, uh, the Roman Empire just considered them, that's just all the, Jew, yeah, the Jewish people. Totally, yeah, they're part of the way. There's a few weirdo Gentiles that have joined them and stuff. Yeah, but, but they're then still pretty much Israel's. Yeah. Complete wiping out of Israel, or, or Palestine as it's called at the time, in, in um, 70. What, 70 AD. Um, the second temple is destroyed, and so, so then Israel disappears off the map until 1948 there is no israel nation for centuries yeah and and so the question that like hovers all through that period it seems is does god still pick nations um and so to a whole bunch of people he does like it, constantine claimed rome as a christian nation um and said this is now how you worship this is who we are um, Britain had a certain Zionist theology of we are God's chosen nation. We are the light to the world. Yep. We're going to go and we're going to conquer and we're going to use it to bring the Christendom to the world. Yeah. And even the founding of America was like, we want religious freedom. Yeah. And so all these Christians, even though it wasn't just Christians, by the way, uh, all uh, yeah. these Christians, uh, I'm doing air quotes if you're on a <laughs> podcast, come here to find religious freedom and to set up a truly Christian nation, which if you look at the history is spotty at best, whether that's mm -hmm. actually the case, but, um, and then America's now the Christian nation. Mm -hmm. We're the new Israel. Yeah. So what, what I hear you saying to answer this question, are we today in America and other Western nations? So it includes the other nations. Are we like this in that same sense? Is this, so what you're actually questioning is, can we even talk at the national level when it comes to so this can kind we, of judgment? So, so I think there's been this language for a long time of the nation has turned its back on God. Yeah. And I think what we actually mean by that sometimes is there's a couple of options. Sometimes we mean less people go to church. Sometimes we mean moral standards have changed. Uh, but And sometimes we mean we don't have someone who calls themselves Christian in office. Yes. So so all of those get very muddied when you start to talk about at what level can you say God is blessing or not blessing a nation? Um, is America the most powerful nation in the world because of God's blessing? Does God mind if Russia becomes the most powerful nation in the world or China becomes the most powerful nation in the world? Does he mind if... China isn't a majority Christian. Does he stop minding if China suddenly has more Christians? Well, when you than say it like that, the question is not whether God minds. I mind. Yes. Yeah. 
because it, it affects me. I'm living in America, so I want this one to be the one that God's Yeah, totally. And I, I mean, I, I have lived in a country that used to be the most powerful nation in the world. Yeah. I mean, literally until 1912, Britain has the biggest navy in the world. It has the largest gold resources in the world. It's like, it is the center of everything still. And then there's this gradual switch um, after you guys bailed us out of a couple of wars that, that starts to move, swing the pendulum. Yeah. Um, and so, so as, a, as a British person asking the question, my question might be like, well, why? Like, why, why? God's judgment. Potentially, right? That's the question that we're wrestling with, and it doesn't have a simple answer. Like, some, some of the answer to that is simply, there is no logical, on-the-surface reason to why, in a divine perspective, America should rise and Britain should, should drop in the, the power rankings of nations. Well, yeah, the logical progression is just be, be more obedient to God and you rise. And, and, and so then the question becomes, is there anything that we can look at and say, is there anything that was more Christian about America than Britain? Because we're now not, not comparing um, America to, to China, to Russia, to, I'm air quoting now as well, enemy states. We're comparing it to allies. Yeah. We're comparing two nations that are very similar in their philosophies. Britain has a state church. Like, yeah, there's no... You guys don't have a state church. Yeah, you can teach the Bible in church, in school. I grew up singing Christian songs every single day in school. Yeah, so um, in one sense, you should be more powerful. So, so that's the challenge, right? Like, why why does one nation come to the forefront and one not? And And, and it seems like what we can say is this. That might be because... God wants to use them for something, but it might not be because their behavior is great. So yeah. it's exactly what we see with Babylon. With Babylon, they're, they're, this is they're the most a powerful horrifying nation. This, nation. Is super, this is the superpower. So, so I think for the question, like, um, my, my intriguing, like, counter question almost is, what do you see in the nation right now that tells you all is not well? Um. Military-wise, militarily, most dominant nation in the world. Uh, standard of living, at least in terms of, like, income. Best in the world. Best in the world. Like, there's the small, like, tiny yeah. little nations that have, like, ludicrous GDPs and stuff like yeah. that. But in general, like, there's lots of metrics that you might pick and say, like, affluence-wise. Uh, even when I moved from England, the, the towns I've happened to live in, Mm -hmm. I, I was instantly like, oh my goodness, the standard of living here is so much higher. Yeah. Uh, the, the disposable wealth is so much higher. Um, and so what are we seeing that says that that's changed? And could it be that we've lost our way as a nation and nothing's changed? And then could it be that simply God's metric in the kingdom of God era is I want more followers and worshipers. So so I think the question is actually, and some of the other questions flesh this out a little bit more, is actually related to, no, maybe we feel like everything is awesome, like, mm -hmm. like yeah. your sermon, but the writings on the wall were about to fall. So I think the question is couched in mm -hmm. this assumption that morally we're off mm -hmm. as a nation, mm -hmm. and therefore as a nation, we're going to be punished by some other nation. And that's why we're seeing in increased power for China and these other things. Yeah, yeah, and that yeah. okay. essentially the prophetic that's, voice, yeah. modern voice would say, the writings on the wall, we're gonna fall. Mm -hmm. it, is, is that what you see going on? I, I would say that could prophesy against America. That, I dare you. <laughs> <laughs> so, so oh, I, 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 I would say that anytime you start seeing nations that make terrible moral choices on mass, you almost inevitably see consequences from them. Um, and, and whether God orchestrates those or whether he's set in place an organic aspect to which those things take place anyway, I, I could go either way. But here's what's fascinating with the remnant idea. I'm not sure it changes what we're called to do as followers of Amen. Jesus. Amen. 
Yes, uh, like as followers of Jesus, yeah. Yes, yeah, so, so simply, we are called to continue to live out the way of Jesus, to voice that way when it feels countercultural, and to accept the consequences when that countercultural voice is considered as the voice of the enemy, yeah, which and, it inevitably becomes, I think. Yeah, this is actually the gift of being a follower of Jesus. We're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. That's a nation yeah. that Jesus inaugurated, uh-huh. and the message he preached in the gospel, come be a part of this kingdom. Um, and and that, that's, the, our, that's our primary citizen, our citizenship. Our secondary citizenship would be to a nation. And um, that secondary word is so important, right? Secondary. it's so easy to flip them. I've shown multiple times that like hilarious Babylon B um, meme where they've got like, it says something like Christian man says heaven's second best choice if he can't just keep living in America in the 21st century. <laughs> like life is awesome. Everything's great. And we'll get to that in Jerusalem in chapter five yeah. when, we, when we push into the week after this. Yeah. Um, so so I, I, I think that that I'm fascinated by the question, I don't know that we can say for certain America's behavior will certainly lead to an obvious judgment. It took centuries for Babylon to be judged in the way that God said they would be, and they eventually disappear off the map. Um, there's a whole rhythm of the same thing with Egypt at different parts that, that are, we're talking hundreds of years of dominance at different points with no obvious repercussions. Yeah. Um, and so for us to start saying, oh man, it must be in the next election cycle. Well, God's timing very rarely seems to work like that. And yeah. just as this horrific life of Babylon, in Babylon, this, this, these horrific practices that they have, um, are being talked about as, as resulting in judgment. They are still maintaining their dominance in every category available. Uh, they are the nation everyone is looking to. Yeah. And in Jeremiah's lifetime, that won't seem to change um, for a long time. Yeah. Um, this, ne- this next question, um, I think it was really well written. Um, and it, yeah, I think we can, we got to move fairly quickly if we're going to hit some more of these questions because we've been going for a while. But do you guys feel that we as Americans might be going off the rails and traveling on the slow road to hell, in quotation? without seeing the mo- uh, the mileposts and signs that you describe in the sermon on Sunday. Are we living like the people of Jeremiah uh, was trying to reach in, uh, in his 30 years of ministry? Mm. Um, are, you know, are we on this slow road? And we've already been talking about this a little bit, but... Um, and, and I think, I, I think where, where we could talk about that maybe differently is... Um, I don't think I, I could say any more about the broad nation aspect. Yeah. I am intrigued by the followers of Jesus aspect. Exactly. Yeah. Like, like, I so totally ha- agree. How we, how we find like, so, so like you could bring that into individual practices. Like how are our views on different things shaped? Like how does morality look in the church compared to what it looked like at different points in history? And 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 most churches will go w- one of two directions when we talk about that. And I touched on this a little bit, some of the complexity of this on Sunday. Yeah. Because for the Eastern church, sin is primarily a corporate thing. Yes. And for the Western church, it's primarily an individual thing. So in the in the Western church, we would say God is deeply interested in what happens in your bedroom. Like that's just been how we phrase things for a long time. Yeah. Like that's some of the primary way that we determine righteousness or not righteousness. Did you get, have you been divorced? Because divorce is a bad thing. Um, have you practiced like monogamous um, heterosexual marriage? Because that's the only option. Like, so, and I'm not saying that's not right, but I'm saying those are, those are the ways. Have you cheated on your taxes? Those are our moral standards. Do you go to church? Do you tie? Do you attend yeah. a church service? Or do you smoke cigarettes? Yeah. Do you um, drink? Yeah. Where, whereas in the Eastern church, they've primarily thought of sin as, are you contributing negatively or positively to the health to of the, the world? To the environment of the world. Yeah, yeah. Environment's probably too... Not... Like, like you, the broad word environment, totally. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Uh, not the ecology, but the, the just everything around you. Yes. So again, now in, in the modern world, a whole bunch of people are saying, well, the church started going wrong when it stopped being the people that were coming alongside 
people on the point of death, people who were living on the streets, people who were in the worst and lowest place. Um, as soon as Christians stopped doing those things, that's when things started going bad. And a whole other wing of the church would start saying, well, it was when Christians stopped being really anti-divorce that things started going bad. It's when they're not anti-abortion enough. That's when things started going wrong. Yes. And and mm -hmm. broadly, it's So which like, one's right? Tell us, tell us, tell us. Both, right? Yeah. That's the hard thing, right? There is no better or worse in that. Yes. Um, it is both. And I, I mean, I guess it's just to push this issue of the national thing a little bit further. It's, it, I think it's super helpful to continually remind yourself, because I feel this myself, uh, if you have this wrestling to try and separate your Americanness from your kingdom of mm. godness and because if you can separate those two out then then things start shifting in the way you mm. interact with these yeah, kinds yeah. of issues yeah. you start asking what's best for the nation mm -hmm. yeah or maybe the better more jesus way thing to ask would be what's best for the kingdom because let's just say hypothetically and this might ruffle some feathers, but I'll say it so that Alex stays, <laughs> stay, stays safe here. Um, hypothetically, let's say there's this unprecedented revival in China and it becomes the most beautiful Christian uh -huh. moral nation on the planet earth. Would we not want it to take us over? Huge question, right? If you're a kingdom follower. Well, and I would say, look at that from my perspective. If America was generally more righteous than Britain, should I not celebrate its rise? Like, I mean, like surely it's a, only a good it's thing. A, I mean, it's a gut check as an, as an American and as a follower of Jesus. Like there's this like, you're almost like, oh goodness. Like hypothetically, paint that picture out. Like yeah. if, the, does the kingdom win, yeah. the kingdom of God win? Or does America win? So, so and, and that's and, the, yeah, challenge, it's, challenging it's question. It's super like, uncomfortable. Like, as far as I'm aware, and, and I'd love someone to pull some statistics on this, like, you, there's the government aspect. More people have come to follow Jesus in China in the last um, last hundred years than followed Jesus in America currently today. Like, when they kind yeah. of the Iron Curtain started to come, yep. pull, pull, peel back, I think they, they estimated between 80 and 100 million underground Christians in China living in the face of persecution, living uh, the way of Jesus, even when it was considered toxic uh, and considered um, anti-communist, anti-China. So, yeah, and there's some horrible things government-wise from China and, all, and, and Russia and all these things, but the point is, gut check. Which kingdom do we want to win? The kingdom of America or the kingdom of God? Kingdom. Yeah, yeah, and that that that's a really challenging thing to to push into, uh, and so I, I I think our longing it's totally normal and important for you to long for your nation that you were born in to follow in the way of Jesus. And it's it's also the most access we have to yes. shift the goodness of in totally. the world. We can vote a certain way to try and advance the kingdom. But that, but that, so like so that, that king, where that kingdom participation can lead you, which I think is wonderful, is William Carey, the missionary I wrote my thesis on, um, lived thirty years in England before he moved to India. Died at seventy-two in India, and after thirty years in India, he said, "I'm Indian." You know, I, 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 I this is the nation I've spent the most time in now. That's how I consider myself. And if you've ever eaten Indian food, I don't blame you. <laughs> but he never lost the centrality of before any nation, I'm a kingdom of heaven. And, and, and that like language is all through the New Testament. Yeah. Um, if they had wanted a place to call home, they would have found one. But they consider themselves, you know, foreigners. sojourners, foreigners so in this world. And yep. that, that's been a huge challenge to me in terms of my willingness to leave a nation that I called home. Um, that still has a pull on my heart in lots of time, uh, lots of times, um, which I don't think is a bad thing. Again, like I, yeah. I totally understand the love for America that I see in yeah. so many people. Um, totally, and I think it's beautiful. Yeah, I mean, I'm a brother in the military, yeah. grandfather in the military. I'm not at all poo pooing. No, any no, of no, that, no. But, but the kingdom yeah. of God has to come first. Yep. Um, now, where I think uh, that other question also goes is, I think someone mentioned the Asbury revival or the Asbury yeah. experience that's that's kind of still continuing at the moment, as I understand it. Um, 
and and I think my only observation of that is, if that's God's work, that's super exciting. And I always look at those things like in in Acts chapter five, someone asks Gamaliel, this really well known uh, yes. speaker, like, what do you think about what these people are doing? These Christ these these, these Christians, Christians, what should yeah. we do? And he's like, let's just 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 accept. Like right now, we don't know. Uh, be careful if you don't God, find you yourself fighting it. against God. If yeah. it's God, you can't stop it. One of the things I would always say seemed to me to be markers of revival. And, and I got to live in something that some people called a revival in England. Um, and yet I would say never hit all of these notes. Loads of people come to follow Jesus. And there was a huge change to behavior yes. in the people that experience it. So it's not just we sang songs for five days in a row. Uh, when the Welsh revival and the Hebridean revival took place, the pubs were just empty. Huge drinking cultures, guys getting you know, blasted every single night, and suddenly they weren't. Suddenly they couldn't sell beer because everyone was in church. They would change. There was a change to the pattern of living. Yeah, or, um, or even revivals in the New Testament where the economic system of a whole city starts falling apart yes. because they won't buy idols. Yeah, so, so like yeah. they always seem in the end to push there. Yeah. Not just we feel like we should be in church every night. Yeah. Um, and so there's been revivals similar to that that have been, you know, it's a six day a week worship service. Yep. And and they've not come to anything in terms of how the world looks different. Yeah. And it seems like ultimately we get to sit and say, Yeah, I'm I'm so excited. But if if that's the work of the Spirit of God, like my prayer would be and should be. God, we want that here. Bring it. Yeah. Like, that's exciting. Bring it here and yeah. and maybe transformative to us. We have already gone a full hour. And so we should wrap it up at least <laughs> uh with maybe some closing uh thoughts. So what All right, if as followers of Jesus, as people who attend South Fellowship Church, how do we deal with this question um related to this prophetic voice that we've heard in Jeremiah. What, 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 quickly, what could we do this week to lean into some of this? So I, I think I think that there's a corporate word for us as a church, which which might be keep doing what you're doing, keep choosing to be for those on the margins. Yeah. Uh, keep choosing to press into that. There might be a challenge for us in choose to press into holiness, choose yeah. to press into living a particular way to choosing a particular path that may not always be easy. Because certainly as some of those questions touch on, there is um, this tension between where culture goes around us and where the church goes. Yeah. So the temptation for the church will be to either like completely step outside of culture or to completely mimic culture. Yeah. And somewhere the narrow way feels to be to stay engaged enough um, with the good to be able to live differently where it's bad. And that's so hard to do. It um, is. And so figuring out, I just, a really good word on this, I just got from this mentor I was chatting to yesterday where we asked, you know, in, in line with some of those questions uh, that we talked about at the start of Jeremiah, some of those, um, the willingness to count the cost. He was telling me about a, a, a couple he was really close to. Um, it was a distant family member, cousin, second cousin, and that second cousin was gay. And um, the moment New York made gay marriage legal, they came straight around and said, will you marry us? And he was like, no. And they're like, what do you mean? You love us. Like you're always having us over for, um, for dinner. Like we're in your house all the time. You, you really care for our adopted kid. Like you just, you're the most involved family member that we have. Like, why would you not marry us? And he's like, well, personally, my belief is that marriage in a Christian sense is between one man and a woman. Um, and so my principle says I can't. And and we've come to understand um, kindness as uh, approval, like that. That's like a, or, or like or like love as approval. Like if if I am connected to you, I have to be willing to approve of everything you do. And that's true on a big cultural level. 
uh, and on an individual level. It sounds like a whole nother hour episode. It really could be. But but I think yeah. that that premise is that we well, we keep loving people, which is the basic premise Jesus gave us that that in terms of how we live in his way with his heart. We we continue to love people and yet we don't ever get to a point where we say that has to be a hundred percent approval all the time. Yeah, and so I guess the 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 challenge is for us as a church family, which is what we have most close access to to is to let's increasingly become a community that is a remnant. Mm-hmm. Whether America's in power or another nation's in mm-hmm. power or whatever, we want to be the remnant that stays faithful to the mm-hmm. way of God and the heart of God and the it whatever's shifting around us. And that in, the in complication the of that is a constant vertical and horizontal conversation. A horizontal mm-hmm. conversation with those around you while having a vertical vertical conversation with God. Well, the next time someone drives into the back of your car. Uh, you you have to decide what is the the Jesus thing to do in this situation. Is it to get your car fixed? Maybe. Is it to pretend you have whiplash so you can get like some kind of lawsuit going? Yeah, probably, probably not. not. Like there's some <laughs> like some no's and then some there's some yeses there. And and so I think that yeah. that constant vertical conversation, which we talked about in in listening to God, the series before this, is so important. Um, go and live horizontally with people around you, but constantly keep that vertical conversation going. Love it. All right. Well, that was a dense episode. And it's, yeah, it was. <laughs> we're just starting Jeremiah. We love you all. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, we hope that was helpful. I'm sorry we didn't get to all of the questions that were given. I, I have a feeling they'll circle back around throughout the series. And so maybe we'll get to some more of them later. But uh, thanks for tuning in. Like, subscribe, comment, rate, Absolutely. The things. And if you wanted a whole nother, whole nother stuff, someone from my small group just sent me a message saying, how old is the earth according to the Bible? Right now? <laughs> Let's start it right away. Oh, man. Okay. Love you guys. Thanks for checking us out. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Well, thanks again for listening, and we hope that that was a helpful conversation for you. We'd love to interact with you about this, so feel free to leave comments questions, all that sort of thing. And we'll try our best to get back to you when we can. Have a great day.